The following is a conversation between James Siegel, the Chief Executive Officer of Kaboom, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. This is a difficult time for everyone, especially children living in underserved communities. And if there is one thing that the COVID-19 pandemic has done is to unmask the inequities that exist in our society, including the availability of safe play spaces for children. And here to discuss that and other related matters, it's a pleasure to have with us James Siegel, the president and CEO of Kaboom. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, James. Thank you, Denver. It's wonderful to be with you again. You know, before we address the current situation, tell us about Kaboom and what the organization does. Sure. Happy to, Denver. And before I do, I just want to say I wanted to thank you for all the interviews that you've been doing recently with nonprofit leaders that I admire so greatly about how they and their organizations are responding to this crisis, because for me, it's been incredibly helpful, and I'm sure it's been uh, for others as well. Well, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. For Kaboom, we're focused on making sure that kids have access to high quality places to play. We do that by working closely with communities that have experienced significant disinvestment and working with municipal systems that are often the places where solutions can lie to ensure that kids have great places to play, whether it's where they live and thinking about public housing and affordable housing, or it's where they go to school our public school systems across the country or parks and other places that kids experience in their neighborhoods. Our goal is to make sure that we can end the inequity that exists in access to high quality places to play because we know how important play is for kids' ability to grow and be well. Absolutely. So as of now, James, are most of the playgrounds in the country closed? Yes, the National Recreation and Parks Association has been doing some quick pulse surveys through their network and well over 90% of parks have shut down their playgrounds. And we came out early on emphasizing that everyone has to put public health first. And so you can imagine it's difficult for me as the person saying how important playgrounds are in kids' Mm -hmm. lives and as community assets to say that people should stay away from playgrounds. But the reality is that we're in the middle of such a significant, serious public health crisis that all of us need to focus first and foremost on ensuring that we do our part to minimize the public health impacts of this crisis. And so we've encouraged people to stay away from playgrounds because of the safety concerns involved. But it also feels like a moment where people are understanding the value of great community assets like playgrounds more than ever because they're being uh, prevented and restricted from experiencing them. And so if there's a silver lining in all this, I think it's that that value is increasing while we're all getting used to sheltering in place and practicing social distancing. Well, you never appreciate anything very often until it's gone. I know this is a difficult question to answer, but are there any preliminary thoughts as to when or if or whether we'll get back to playgrounds? It's been interesting to to watch because it's actually been very hard to keep families away from playgrounds, even as public officials and public health uh, folks are issuing warnings and restrictions. There's this innate desire to provide an opportunity for kids to play. And again, I hope that in the short term, people stay away from playgrounds to be safe. 
in the long term, I'm an optimist. And I think people will get back to playgrounds once public officials give the okay, because they're finding this need to come together on things that unify them, like the ability to have kids just experience some joy at a time when everyone is feeling so isolated and feeling that the crisis is affecting them at such an individual level. My guess is that, you know, as restrictions came on, we'll see the delayering of those restrictions. So it's not going to happen all at once, but once the crisis starts to abate, then public officials will start to roll back the restrictions layer by layer. And I think playgrounds will be included in that at the right moment to ensure that people get to take advantage of the great assets that are in their community if they have them. And, you know, our work is making sure that every community has that. And that's certainly not the case. Mm -hmm. In the absence of playgrounds now, what are some of the things that children can do to get exercise and recreation or engage in play in those communities where it is allowed? I think that there are a lot of options and, you know, Kids have unlimited imaginations, and I've seen with my own daughters their ability to create games for themselves, to find ways to play alone with each other and with the caring adults in their lives. That could be as simple as, you know, hopscotch or juggling a soccer ball Mm -hmm. um, or getting back to things like old board games that we used to play. I, I think there are a lot of opportunities for kids to play and it's so important that they do. But I think we also have to be real that this is stopgap measures, that it's not enough. Play is so central to how kids grow and learn. And I I hope that we don't get complacent and think that kids left to their own devices will figure it out. We tend to think that kids are really resilient, but the reality is that when kids experience trauma, whether as a result of a crisis like this or the ongoing crises of living in conditions of communities that have been disinvested in over time, that has lifelong implications for people's well-being. And so it's great to try to ensure that kids have opportunities to play now, given all the restrictions, but we can't just rely on that as the thing that'll take care of kids over the long term. You yeah. have to get back to the things that are so important. Yeah, I can't agree with more. And picking up on young kids' well-being, speak a little bit about youth isolation that's occurring during COVID-19 and are there ways to, to try to address that? That's got to be really tough for a kid. Yes, absolutely. And I know just from the experience of my own kids not being able to interact with their friends or what's been really painful is not being able to get a hug from their grandparents. It is really, really tough. And I think for youth, you know, we've sort of gotten used to the fact that youth today are immersed in technology and they find ways to communicate with their friends and others. And I think that's true to some extent, but I think that understates the reality of the person-to-person, in-person connections that youth make and rely on. And we're seeing even more important these days. I think the, the other aspect of it is that it's not just about whether Uh, folks feel isolated, but whether they have a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And you see the impact on youth who are thinking about like, what does this mean for their ability to 
graduate from high school or go on to college or think about entering the workforce, that sense of purpose is becoming harder and harder to figure out because of the crisis that we're in. And I think anything that we can do as a nonprofit community to provide outlets for youth to not only engage in productive activities, but actually to put their minds to a purpose that's going to improve their communities is even more important now than it's ever been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's even hard to keep track of the days of the week. Is it Tuesday or Thursday? (laughs) These days, one is rolling into the other, but purpose does help provide that structure and that focus. Well, when everything stops like this, I always think it's a good time to reflect on things. Um, As you mentioned before, things we take for granted, like the playgrounds, but also these inequities that exist. Speak to us more about what those inequities look like and what Kaboom is committed to doing to eliminating them through your work. Well, we know that crises often exacerbate disparities. And in the current crisis, it may be easier to see it when it comes to things like access to quality healthcare or to food or to online learning or employment or housing. But it's also true for community infrastructure. And like I said, we work with communities that have experienced significant disinvestment, and often that's the result of a long period of discriminatory policies and practices that have cut off predominantly communities of color from opportunity. And I'll just give you one example of how that affects our work. So we've been doing a lot of work in Baltimore lately. And if you compare Baltimore City Public Schools to neighboring county, Anne Arundel County's public school system, they have about the same number of students. Yet over a recent three-year period, Anne Arundel Public Schools spent almost a half a billion dollars more on school infrastructure. Wow. So think about the impact on the ability to create productive learning environments, including schoolyards where kids have the opportunity to play. And if this crisis is like any other, and there's no reason to think it won't be, then places like Anne Arundel are going to rebound quicker. And -hmm. places like Baltimore are going to get hit even harder. And so what does that mean for the ability to provide wonderful environments for kids to learn to grow including opportunities to play at their schools we have great partners in the mayor's office in baltimore and in baltimore city public schools but i can tell you now more than ever there's no doubt that we're going to need private and philanthropic support to ensure that every kid in baltimore has a great place to play where they learn because the disparities are going to become even wider as the budgets of places like baltimore get hit harder Yeah. I mean, you're seeing these inequities just get wider and wider across the board, such as kids who don't have internet access at home, so cannot get the assignments and the online teaching that other kids are receiving. So that's one of the tragedies come out of this. It's just making these discrepancies wider and wider and wider. Tell us what it's like to have been working with your senior leadership team, uh, for that matter, the entire staff of Kaboom during this period, And do you see uh, maybe fundamental changes in the workplace environment as a result of this shared experience? Yes, definitely. I I think there are bound to be changes. And first, I, I know people say it's tough to be a CEO or a leader in times of crisis, but we at least have the benefit of more information than everyone else in our organization. And 
I've been so impressed with how my colleagues have responded to this crisis in mm -hmm. the face of all the challenges and the uncertainty we face. And think about what we do. We're in the business of bringing communities together, bringing people together to build community assets where people are intended to gather. So all aspects of that have been affected by the current crisis. And yet my colleagues on the senior team have been absolutely terrific and are going the extra mile to stay closely connected with all their teams. And my colleagues across the organization are just rising to the occasion. We're a bunch of doers at Kaboom and everyone is just springing into action to make sure we're ready to go once public health officials give the okay and our community partners are ready to build. And that's just been really, really inspiring to see. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I think it's easy to say that during times of crisis, we should show each other more patience and grace, but actions speak louder than words. And I just wanna relate a quick story from one of my colleagues. She has a toddler at home and her toddler was playing as toddlers do, while her spouse was on an important video conference for his work. And someone on the call in a not so polite tone told her spouse to shut the kid up. <laughs> and Jeez, like, I, yeah, I couldn't imagine any of my colleagues treating each other like that. But we also realize that for us, it's not enough to tolerate life's disruptions as we were all dealing with working while sheltering in place. And so as an organization, we decided that for our staff at Kaboom, we don't just tolerate these disruptions, we celebrate them. Yeah. And so now when someone's kid shows up on a screen, we do what we can to make it something uh, fun and positive. And I hope that that sentiment really carries forward when we all get back to the office. I remember when I was growing up, my parents would always take my call or my brother's call when they were at work. And I assumed that that was how things just worked. Like I thought that was the uh, norm. But when I entered the workforce myself, I realized how special that was. And I appreciated my colleagues who were willing to pause our meetings, no matter how important the meeting was, to say, excuse me, this is my daughter calling, I need to take this. And I hope that the way we've had to adjust to working from home and working remotely through video and meeting remotely, I hope that influences how we interact with each other around family when we all come back together in the office. That's a wonderful story. And I mean, you really understand the psychology of young children. My folks were very much the same way. And having them take my phone call at those critical moments, that lasted with me my entire life, that I was the most important thing to them and not some you know pie chart that was up on a screen or something like that. And it really does have the long-term impact on, on how you feel about yourself and your sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Absolutely. When you were on the show previously, James, we talked about leadership and some of the critical aspects of it. But leadership under a crisis can sometimes be a little bit different. What are the keys to it? And do you think that there are going to be a higher expectation of leaders in the future from their staff and from their volunteers and from their board? I hope there are higher expectations. And I don't think there are any easy answers to your question. Like a lot of people, my inbox is filled every day with tips on how to be an effective leader during a crisis. And frankly, most of it sounds like platitudes. Yes. You know, these are unsettling times and no one has all the answers. 
So this crisis has really forced me to step out of my comfort zone by sharing my own vulnerability while making tough decisions. And I am not one who easily shares deep personal information about myself. But recently, I shared with staff how the crisis was impacting our operations. And before I got into the details, I started by sharing some advice I had learned from my dad's example. And my dad had always been my go-to person for advice around work. He worked for IBM for almost his entire career and had experienced all the ups and downs of that company and that industry. And he would always start from a position of positivity. And he told me that whenever anyone asked him at work how he was doing, it didn't matter what the circumstances were, he would always say, never better. And I think you're absolutely right. I applaud you for doing that. And that is what I have seen, that once the leader does it, other people can be open and honest. And then the bond among the group becomes that much stronger And it becomes a little less revolving around work alone, but the totality of the person and the life and the circumstances in which they're living. Absolutely. And I've also benefited tremendously from my relationship with my board. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a terrific board. It's a small group and it's a working board and they've got deep leadership experience from the corporate world, from the nonprofit community, And from working, I lost my dad about a dozen years ago, and I shared with my staff how I really needed his advice now, because it was impossible for me if someone asked me today to say that I was never better. And it was very difficult for me to share that with the staff. And I got choked up then, and you could probably hear him getting choked up now just talking about it. But I felt it was important to give my colleagues a glimpse inside both my head and my heart as I was sharing the challenges we were facing as an organization and the difficult decisions we were confronted with. People may disagree with my decisions during this crisis. I'm sure some already do. And that is more than okay with me. But I hope that they see that through it all, my motivation is really my commitment to our cause, which really stems from a commitment to family and strengthening families through what play offers. Not easy to do, but I think if you're talking about like the higher standard for leadership, I think it starts from that willingness to be vulnerable with your own colleagues. Yeah, people's intentions mean an awful lot. And when they know that your intentions are good, They can live with a lot of decisions you make. How did you feel after you had done that? I felt on the one hand, I think a sense of relief. Once you share something like that to get through it gives you a sense of relief. But I also felt a sense of, you know, obligation that this isn't like a one shot deal. Mm, Um, Right. This is going to be a crisis that lasts with us for a while. And that may have been my first step to showing so deep a sense of vulnerability, but it can't be my last. And I hope that that gives the freedom to others in the organization to express themselves the same way in and with government. And they're all dealing with this crisis in their own organizations and companies, too. And we get the benefit of their advice based on their own real-time successes and challenges. And that has been absolutely invaluable. 
to have a group to really bounce ideas off of and to work things through. We also have a fantastic, fantastic board chair, Stephanie Galliard-White, who leads HR for a Fortune 500 global business. And to have someone who understands the human side of responding to a crisis as our board chair is absolutely invaluable. And I couldn't imagine trying to work through this crisis without having uh, her and having the board to help me do that. You know, a lot of people have asked me, what's the key to a CEO board chair relationship at a time like this? What would that key be? You know, I think we've always tried to focus on things that are important, like communication, frequent communication, openness to feedback, engaging the board on the issues that are of you know, most importance where the board can really make a difference. I think what this crisis has shown is that it's important to really go deeper. I've had a lot more interaction with individual board members, understanding how they're approaching the challenge for themselves, with their own families, with their own companies. It's really been a gift and probably not something that we would have tried to do, but for the crisis. And so I hope that that's yet another thing that we can carry forward because that is true, true partnership. You can relate to people in that way and share all the challenges. And, you know, whether it's with your board or with funders, nonprofit executives are always tentative to share the, the stuff that might not be going so well. But I think what the crisis has shown is that everyone is dealing with challenges and it's created a different kind of environment for being able to share openly what you're going through, what the organization is going through and how we can all try to figure it out together. Have you gone down the virtual board meeting route yet? And if you have any tips as to how to make those effective? We have, and, you know, I don't, I don't have any, you know, you know, mind blowing advice on this. <laughs> It'd be the I, platitudes you get in your inbox, like on leadership. Yeah, I mean, it's, certainly keeping it short and focused really matters at a time of crisis. People are overwhelmed with everything that they're responsible for. And I'd rather have a short amount of time with everyone's full attention than to try to fill up a large agenda. So we've been trying to keep our interactions as a full board shorter as we're working remotely, definitely meeting more frequently, but also making sure that if we're meeting, we have something real to talk about and not just taking up time. Well, I hope that's a carryover too. (laughs) That would probably be healthy for whole board meetings. Yes. There will be few, if any organizations who don't take a fundraising and financial hit as a result of COVID-19. How have you and your board thought about that, look to address it? And also, what do you think about the economic stimulus bill that came down and what it did for nonprofits? It's certainly affecting us. In addition to just having our projects on hold, we're trying to move things forward as we can. We held our first ever virtual design days with kids where we bring the kids in a community together to draw out their dream playgrounds, which we then use as inspiration for the playgrounds that we ultimately build with community. And so we've been trying as best as possible to adjust, but for the most part, our projects are on hold waiting for the the circumstances on the ground to uh, get to the place where we can get back to work. 
And on top of that, if you look at the funding landscape, we are fortunate to get resources from uh, corporate philanthropy, from uh, more traditional philanthropy, and from the local government. And at every level, it's affecting the landscape. So, you know, if you think about the corporate world, their own businesses are reeling from the crisis. And mm -hmm we often see that corporate philanthropy is one of the things that can get cut first. And so that's obviously something that could affect our organization. With philanthropy, on the bright side, certainly seeing more flexibility from foundations than ever before. And we're seeing that with our discussions with our foundation partners as well. And at the same time, a lot of the money for good reason is flowing to the immediate relief efforts. And, uh, you know, I was listening to your discussion with Jonathan Reckford from Habitat for Humanity, and he was talking about how when disaster strikes, I think he said about 80% of the money goes toward immediate relief and about 20% toward recovery and rebuilding. And our work is certainly in that recovery and rebuilding uh, phase of things. And as folks start to turn toward recovery and rebuilding, we know that foundation endowments have been hit by the financial market decline and giving is likely to be down for the next few years as a yeah. result. And then local government, our partners in local government, their tax bases are eroding. And you know some of the municipal systems we work with on top of that, like schools and parks have lost a lot of their discretionary revenue that they would otherwise have collected from running programs and leasing space and the like. And so across the board, there are huge challenges. And I think in a moment of challenge, you really have to, as an organization, think through what is truly the most important work that you should be doing focus on that and find the partners who are going to rally around that work. To the second part of your question about the, the stimulus, you know, first of all, because our operations have been affected by the crisis, we are uh, grateful to the efforts of independent sector, National Council on Nonprofits, and other groups who are looking out for the interests of the nonprofit community in the stimulus package. And I think that that has been just a terrific effort of bringing the sector together around our common interests. But I also hope that we as a community demand our seat at the table on all aspects of the government's efforts on recovery and rebuilding of our economy. You know, we're seeing that Congress may be taking up a very large infrastructure bill in the trillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And if it passes, most of the money may go toward building roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, and the like. And, you know, I, there's a lot of good work to be done rebuilding that crumbling infrastructure. I don't want to minimize that. But at the same time, those of us in the nonprofit world know that there's also a huge need for community infrastructure, schools, and libraries, affordable housing, public transportation, and, you know, for our work, definitely community play spaces. And if we can prioritize building community infrastructure, we're going to achieve an outsized return on that investment, particularly if we're able to focus our investment on equitable development and the reduction of disparities. And, you know, the nonprofit community is certainly by no means perfect, but we also know that nonprofits are key to building this type of community infrastructure. We're more likely to prioritize equity. We're more likely to focus on deep community engagement so that the development is responsive to the needs of the communities we're working with. 
and we're more likely to build social capital through our work. And so on all of those notes, I hope that the nonprofit community can really step up and influence how we as a uh, society overall spend government resources to achieve the best objectives for the communities that we're working with. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Too often, the nonprofit sector is too much of an afterthought. When they've done their bill, they'll say, oh, we have to put some over here. Well, we have to be in there in the central primary discussion when they're making those big decisions. And I think we've seen the more flexible and unrestricted money that goes to the nonprofit sector is, you really unleash the creativity and innovation of the sector to do some extraordinary work. Finally, James, we know these traumatic events do bring along a series of challenges, but I also know that you are an optimist. So what opportunities do you see coming out of this for Kaboom? I think in the most general terms, I hope that there's a deepening understanding of the importance to focus on addressing inequity in every facet of uh, our work and our lives. And we're seeing it start to emerge as states and localities are collecting data on the immediate impact from the crisis on health and seeing how that data can and should be disaggregated by race and other factors. So my hope is that coming out of this crisis, there's a deepening understanding of the importance of focusing on equity. I also hope that because people are not able to take advantage of community assets that they normally have been able to take for granted, that there is a renewed empathy link where people understand why the community assets that they've been able to take for granted, like great places to play, are so important. And finally, I hope that through all of this, it deepens our commitment to focus on kids. Mm. Often in times of crisis, we overlook the needs of kids because we think they're uh, resilient and it's hard to see the manifestations of trauma as, as easily with kids. But we need as a society to ensure that we're not overlooking the next generation. We need to set them up for success. And again, I'm an optimist. And my hope is that a generation that is growing up during this time of extreme crisis will have better solutions um, better ways of coalescing around uh, common interests than what we have been able to do to date. It may take a, a little while for those folks to influence how we all are working and, and acting, but over the long term, I hope that we're able to capture the power of a generation that's formed through crisis and use that to make our uh, communities uh, more equitable and create an environment where people can be healthy and well. Well said. We've handed them some pretty tough stuff. So I think we owe them to keep them in the front of our mind when making these big decisions. You have some great resources uh, and tips on your website in terms of what uh, parents and kids can do. Tell us a little bit about that and where people can go access it. Be happy to, Denver. And I, I guess I would like to say that if your listeners are living in a community where once the public officials say it's okay to get back out uh, to the playground, that you're going to be able to get your kids out there again, then I hope that folks would consider helping us and contributing to our ability to build playgrounds in communities where kids don't have a great place to go back to after the crisis. 
and you can find out how to help on our website at kaboom.org. Fantastic. Well, James, I really want to thank you for taking the time to share this information. It is so important and it was just wonderful to have you here. Always great to talk to you and stay safe and be well. You too. Thanks so much, Denver. Thank you, James.